Good morning, church. It's great to see you guys. If you're joining us online, thank you for being here, especially you guys up at True Worth. It's, it's good to be with all of you, whether you're here or somewhere else, wherever you are. Thank you for, for spending this time with us. Now, as, as we all saw today during the service with the, the trees and the lighting and all of that stuff, if you weren't already aware, now you are, we are in the Christmas season. And I, I love this time of year, but I find it, it's, it's interesting just how polarizing this season can be for, for people. Like I find there's, there's two types of people. There are people that as soon as we get south of Labor Day, man, you're there, you're ready, you can't wait. And then there are those that if you hint at Christmas before Thanksgiving, you know, how dare you do that? Just so you know, I'm in the first camp. I love Christmas. I could be listening to Christmas music in June. I love it. And so if you're not, if you're one of those people that if, if Target has a decoration of Christmas up just a bit too soon, you get upset about it, here's, here's a kind word for you. It's, it's going to be okay. I promise. Just look the other way. The world's going to keep spinning. It's, it's, it's going to be okay. What I, what I love about this time of the year, though, is I, I love getting to visit with people. I love getting to ask people, hey, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? And so I got, the, I got that question in your sermon notes. And whenever you think about it, I want you to write that down. What is your favorite Christmas tradition? I can tell you what mine is. It's, it's pretty easy. So the, uh, the day after Thanksgiving or two days after Thanksgiving, my wife and kids and I will get all the decorations out of the attic string the Christmas lights around the house, put up the tree, put the decorations throughout the house. We watch the movie Elf. And my wife, she makes one of my favorite dishes. It's baked ziti. And this is the only night of the year that she makes it. So as soon as I smell the Italian sausage cooking, I know, I know Christmas is right around the corner, man. I just, I get amped. I love it. Now, why do we do this? Why, why do we have these traditions? I, th I think, I think we do this to help us prepare for the upcoming season, to get us in the frame of mind to celebrate Christmas. And so in the church, that's what the season of Advent is all about. It's all about the anticipation, the preparation to celebrate Christmas. And so in that mindset, we're going to be taking a look at John the Baptist. Now, he's not a guy that we typically look at during Advent, but I think we should. Because I think what we're going to find when we look at John is we're going to find a good example of what it looks like to prepare for Christmas. Now, as we do that, I want to challenge your thinking just a little bit. I want you to think, you know, as you're preparing to experience Christmas, what would it look like this year as you're doing that to specifically prepare to experience God, to prepare to experience the miracle of the birth of Jesus this year in a new way? Let's pray. Father God, you are the Alpha, you are the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. All that is has its origin in you and will return to you. And you're a part of the middle as well. Every part of life belongs to you. Everything that we do, everything that we have comes from you. And this season, in the season of giving gifts, we remember, we reflect that you are the giver of all the good gifts of this world. And especially in this season, we remember the greatest gift this world ever received, and that was the gift of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in your Bibles, I want you to, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and somebody will bring one to you. 
And we're going to be in Luke, uh, right there at the beginning of chapter 3. And for the most part today, we're going to camp out in the first couple of chapters of Luke. Once you get there, we're, we're going to stay there for a while. And I want to pick up right there at the very beginning, verse 1. And we're going to have the words on the screen as well, so you can follow along there if you'd like. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, there's, there's a couple of things that I want to point out about that passage. And the first is this. You may be asking yourself, you know, why, why did I start at the beginning of the chapter? Why didn't I skip those first two verses when he lists all of those people? And the answer is, it's, I didn't read that just, just to show you that I know how to pronounce those words. That's not why I did it. There's no incidental content in, the, in our scripture. Everything that's in our text is there for a reason. And when we, when we read that, I think the most obvious is, well, they, they put that information in there so that they can date it. So you can look at it and you can understand the time frame that they're talking about. But I think there's something else important about those names. He, he starts with the head honcho, the big guy, Caesar. And he works his way down just listing all of the different powerful people and all of the power hubs, where they're located. And after he lists all of those powerful people, where does the word of God appear? Some obscure guy out in the middle of nowhere where nobody was looking. You see, in the season when we're trying to experience this miracle of God and we're asking, are, are miracles still happening? Might I suggest they're happening and we miss it because we're not looking in the right places. We're focused on the wrong people. The other thing is this. About John specifically, there in verse four says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John, he was a single-minded kind of guy. His, his life, it came down to one clear mission. His mission was this. Prepare the way for Jesus. His whole life came down to that one mission. Now, he, he's an interesting guy, John. And, and admittedly, we don't, we don't know a lot about John the Baptist. I'm going to flip back to Matthew 3. You don't need to go there. Uh, it's going to be on the screens. But there's a verse there that talks just a little bit about John so we can kind of get a, a focus of who he is. There in verse 4 in chapter 3 of Matthew, it says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So I want us to get a picture in our mind of who, of who John is. Now, in our context, we think about John the Baptist. The closest parallel we could probably find is this guy. If you don't know, this is, this is Bear Grylls. He's a sort of a, a modern-day survivalist. He had this show on TV called Man vs. Wild, and he'd go, he'd take on some of these remote areas of the world, and he'd survive just by living off the land. Or for my fellow avid hunters out there, if you're a hunter and you have a Netflix subscription, you might be familiar with this next guy 
This is Steven Rinella. He's got a show on Netflix called Meat Eater. If you're a hunter and you have Netflix and you haven't started watching this show, you really need to. It's outstanding. I love it. But this is who John is. John is this, he's this outdoors, rugged, survivalist sort of guy. But his life, it came down to that one purpose, to prepare the way for somebody else. This is what makes John unique. When we think about people like Bear Grylls and Stephen Ronella, some of these survivalist guys, they tend to be hyper-focused on being masters of their domain, being the number one guy, the lead guy, the head honcho, big chief. But not John. I want to look there in Luke 3, verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here John is, he's he's baptizing people and, and the spotlight, it starts to focus in on John. And people start asking questions. They're like, is is this the Messiah? Is this, is this the Christ? And as soon as he becomes aware of what they're doing and what they're saying, I mean, he's the first one to say, no, guys, no, no, no. You, you got the wrong guy. I'm not, I'm not the lead guy. I'm not the one that needs to be in the spotlight. That guy's coming. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm preparing the way for him. This guy, man, I'm not even fit to untie his shoes. That's your guy. You see, John, he was okay not being the lead guy, not being in charge. How was he able to do this? In your sermon notes, four simple words. He embraced this concept. It's not about me. Now, that's a phrase I'm sure many of us have said. But just in the off chance that you've never said this phrase, we're going to say this together. You ready? It's not about me. This is what being a Christ follower is all about. Not just saying that phrase, but embracing it, embodying it. This is what John does. So here's a fun question for all you, all you football fans out there. I wonder if I, if I ask you the question, who's the greatest running back of all time? I'm already hearing different names. I love it. If you're a Cowboys fan, I'm willing to bet you're going to say, hey, it's Emmitt Smith. I mean, he holds the record. How do you argue against that? And if, if you're from north of the Texas-Oklahoma border, you're probably going to say Barry Sanders. Because, you know, he didn't have the offensive line that, that uh, Emmitt Smith did. Now, this is just my opinion. I could be wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> I think you'd both be wrong. I think the greatest running back of all time, he had a, he had a really cool nickname. His nickname was Sweetness. If you don't know, that's Walter Payton. It's hard to argue against Walter Payton. I'm a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan, and I'll still say, man, he's the guy. But here's the point. Whether you think it's Walter Payton, whether you think it's Emmitt Smith, or whether you think it's Barry Sanders, I'm willing to bet if I ask every one of you, who's the greatest running back of all time, I'm willing to bet none of you is going to say Matt Suey. Exactly. (laughs) Most of you don't even know who that is. But here's the deal. If you've ever seen a clip of Walter Payton, you've seen Matsui, you just didn't know it. See, when we watch clips of Payton, we follow the ball, right? The guy with the ball. But when you watch Walter Payton, if you look just a few yards ahead of him, you're going to see Matsui. 
He was his fullback. He was the guy blocking ahead of him. He was the guy taking on the defensive end, the linebacker, whoever was coming after Walter Payton. That was his job. He was going to take him down. He put his body through torture, and nobody knows who he is. And for Matt, he was okay with that. He said this in an article reflecting on his role. He said, look, I, I fulfill a role. I have to be consistent, reliable, dependable. Look, this is what being a Christ follower is all about, being a role player, being okay doing the work for somebody else, being okay not being in the spotlight. Now, this is who John is, but I'm curious, where did that come from? So I'm going to go back to John's birth. I want to look at his parents because, you know, that, that uh, servant's heart, that selfless nature, these, these aren't the sort of things that just pop up. I mean, these are the sort of things that are taught. And so I want to look at his parents and see if we can figure out, okay, how did this happen? How did he get it right? We read in chapter one, his, his parents, Zechariah is a priest and his mom, Elizabeth, they're both advanced in years well beyond the age of being able to have kids. And so what you need to know in this context is that it wasn't a choice to not have kids. It was, it was looked at as a disgrace. And in some cases, they, they looked at it as God's punishment if you didn't have kids. So if you're a parent, I want you, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You desperately want a child and it doesn't happen. And to make matters worse, your, your friends, they're they're probably looking down their noses at you. And they're probably talking about you when you're not around. They're probably saying things like, what's up with these guys? What did, what did they do? Why is God punishing them? What, what sin did they commit? And then maybe, maybe you start to believe it. You start to believe that, you know, God is punishing me. God is putting me through this. How might that impact your faith? I can tell you how I might react. I, I think I'd be angry. I'd be depressed, disappointed, defeated. But what about Zechariah? What about Elizabeth? I want to read there in verse 6 in chapter 1. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. You see, even though the very thing they desired, they prayed for, they wanted, they needed, even though it didn't come, they still remain righteous before God. In your sermon notes, how do we prepare the way to experience God? By being patient and obedient. Now, what do, what do we normally do when we don't get what we think we deserve? If our job doesn't pay us like we think they should, or they promote somebody else instead of us, or they, they lay us off without warning and for no reason. Or if, if, if you're married and your spouse, they're not giving you the attention that you think you deserve. Whatever the case is, what do we tend to do if we're not getting what we think is rightfully ours? Sometimes we'll, we'll go out of our way to acquire for ourselves what we think is rightfully ours. And I say this because this is such a pitfall for so many of us. Too often we find ourselves in trouble when we shift our ethics to fit our desire instead of the other way around. But not Zechariah, not Elizabeth. You see, they didn't allow their disappointment to change their behavior. 
This is what true character looks like. True character is not allowing your circumstances to dictate for you how you understand right and wrong, to be consistent. So here we are, years of praying, years of disappointment, but still being obedient. Zechariah, he's in the, he's in the temple and the angel of the Lord appears. Anytime an angel of the Lord appears, what's the first thing the angel always says? What's, what's the first thing? Don't be afraid. Why do you think that is? Because you'd be afraid, wouldn't you? I mean, that's not, this isn't a regular occurrence. You read that and think that it was happening all the time. It wasn't. I mean, so Zechariah, he's freaking out a little bit. There's this angel appearing before him. And the angel says, don't be afraid. Look, God has heard your prayers. And your wife, she's going to give birth to a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, imagine Zechariah's surprise. Even his disbelief, Scripture says that he couldn't believe it, that he doubted. And so the angel tells him, hey, because of your doubt, you're going to remain silent until your son is born. I hope we can all connect with that. We can relate to how he responds, because I think this is what we do often when, you know, we, we intentionally pray for something to happen. But then deep down, we, we doubt that ultimately God is going to provide for us. This was exactly my experience. Just uh, I got to celebrate this actually a couple of days ago. My son, Aiden, for those of you that don't know, like as long as I've known him, I've always looked at him as though he was my son. But legally, you know, he was, he was my stepson. <clears throat> and this, this caused my wife and I a lot of grief, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear wrapped up in, in what was to come of Aiden because that was, it was just it was out of our control. And so we prayed intentionally for a long time that I would have the opportunity to adopt him. And then when the day came, I get the phone call from Chris and she says, guess what, you're, you're gonna be a daddy I couldn't, I couldn't speak. I, I, it was too much. I doubt it. I couldn't believe the words that I was hearing. I, I, I second guess, like, this, this can't be real. I prayed so much for that one thing, and then when it finally happened, I didn't believe it to be true, and I couldn't speak. You see, our brokenness, our, our jaded view of humanity, our cynicism, our disappointments, these are the things that lead us to doubt that God is going to provide for us. In your sermon notes, we prepare the way to experience God when we trust in God's faithfulness. <clears throat> I want to point out, this, the Gospel of Luke and, and, and this entire Bible, it's built on that premise that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. The last time I spoke to you, I gave you a challenge. I said, look, if, if you're not already doing this, go get yourself a journal. And write in it every day. And I think this is important because if you do that, you have evidence of the faithfulness of God in your life. And you can look back on it and say, man, I remember that. I remember that time in my life. I remember how much that sucked. But man, God is faithful. God got me through. And the next time you find yourself in crisis, you got something that you can go to, that you can reflect on. You can remember how good God is. And every year, on November 30th, that was just this past Friday, Aiden and I, we got to celebrate that victory. We got to celebrate the adoption. We call it Aiden and Daddy Day. It's always on November 30th. And 
from the time we both wake up to the time we go to bed, we spend the entire day together just having fun, doing whatever we wanna do. And every day, every November 30th, I, I connect with those emotions about the fear, the anxiety, just how much I worried about that situation. I, I reconnect with just how much I desired to have him as my son. I, I remember those things. And I remember that, yeah, humanity, we're sinful, but God, God is faithful. God is good. So I wanna look ahead just a bit there, verse 39. Mary, she's, uh, she's just been given the news that she's gonna give birth to Jesus. And so she goes to talk to Elizabeth to tell her the good news. Now, all you moms, think about this from Elizabeth's perspective. You're advanced in age. You're thinking the days of you becoming a mom, those days are gone. And then the unthinkable happens. You find out that you're gonna have a son. And the news hasn't fully sunk in. And somebody else in your family gets pregnant. Let me be honest, how might you respond? You might be just a little miffed that they're going to steal your glory, that somehow their victory is going to overshadow yours. I mean, just, just think about how did this conversation go down? Here's Elizabeth is saying, look, I can't explain it. I, it doesn't make any sense, but, but the angel tells me that I'm going to give birth to a son. And not only that, he's going to be great. He's gonna be a prophet. He's gonna do awesome things. And, and Mary says, oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm giving birth to the son of God. <laughs> you know what it's like to be one-upped in the conversation? I mean, this is it. <laughs> but how does Elizabeth respond? What is she saying? She says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. In your sermon notes, we prepare the way to experience God when we embrace this concept. It's not about me. You see, Elizabeth, she doesn't just make this claim. She lives it out. And so, I mean, it it should come as no surprise that later in life, John would do the same thing. In the season of gift giving, parents, think about the things that you want to give your kids might I suggest we think about teaching them things like this because that's how they're going to learn it. So this was a few years back. My son used to play t-ball. I see one of the coaches on that team, Victor, is here. He'll remember this year well. So he was five years old playing t-ball, and we had made it through the playoffs. We were in the championship game. In retrospect, I think it's a little odd that at five-year-old t-ball, they have playoffs and, and championship games. Because really, at that point, we're just, man, we're hoping that when they hit the ball, they go to first instead of third. I guess this is what they do. So my son, whenever he recorded his first out, he tagged the base runner out. Now, here's what's odd about that story. He was playing outfield. <laughs> the, kid, the kid that hit the ball, he doesn't run to first. He chases after the ball. I don't think my son even moved a foot. The ball rolls up to him, and he just, he picks it up, and he holds it for a second, looks up, and there's the base runner, and somebody yells to tag him out, so he just... He's out. This is what five-year-old T-ball is all about. It's about having fun, learning the game, just playing with kids. Kids were having a lot of fun. You know who wasn't having fun? The parents. Man, the parents weren't having fun like the kids were. Uh, something else. 
So here we are, we're in the championship game. <clears throat> and my son is on third base. It's the bottom half of the last inning, two outs. We're down by one run and we're, we're up to the plate. And I'm next to him because I'm coaching third base. Now, on a side note, I don't, in no way do I condone sports gambling. I don't condone it. But if this is you, if you participate in that sort of thing, here's my tip for you. If you go out to a ball field and you see me coaching third base, you go and you place a bet on the other team because we're not winning. I don't have a clue about the game. <clears throat> so the kid, he hits the ball. Aiden's running home. But before he gets there, the catcher picks up the ball, tags him out. Game over. We lose. And the air was just sucked out of the stands. The parents were defeated. They were dejected, heads in the hands, just the whole thing. And so I immediately, I run to my son. I get down on my knees and I console him. I give him a big hug and I say, son, it's okay. It's okay that you didn't win, man. You, you look like you had fun. You played a great game. I'm proud of you, son. And the whole time I'm trying to console him, man, his head is just on a swivel. He's just kind of doing this number and I'm still trying to console him. And finally, he interrupts me and he says, okay, Dad, that's great. Which, which parent has the juice boxes? <laughs> like, he didn't care. They were just having fun. And because they didn't care, they didn't miss the joy of the moment. But some of the parents, because they cared so much about winning, they missed the joy of the moment. When we get caught up in the emotions and the chaos, we lose the joy. I want to remind us of something that we all know very well. And that is that the gifts that we give our kids, what they're going to remember far more in this season than what's inside those boxes, they're going to remember the type of people we were when life got crazy. And they're going to replicate that later in life. <clears throat> so when we finally have that experience, we have that encounter, we understand that it's not about me. We experience the grace of God in a powerful way. It just it turns our life around. What next? How do we respond? I want to go back to Luke as an adult <clears throat> there in chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. So these people, they're, they're being baptized, and <clears throat> they're having this encounter, and they want to know, okay, what do we do next? So John says, uh, in verse 10, it says, And the crowds ask him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. See, these people are having that experience. They're having that turn. They want to know, what do we do next? What do we, how do we respond? And John tells them, look, turn away from your sin. Keep your eyes on God. And most importantly, go serve somebody else. In your sermon notes, how do we respond to the experience of God? Prepare the way for someone else. Look, if you're, if you're still unsure about your faith, if you're still kind of wrestling with this whole Jesus thing, look, you're welcome. You're welcome here. And if you're in that season, man, it's okay if it's a little bit about you. That's okay because you're, you're asking yourself a lot of questions. You're trying to figure it out. That's okay. But if you are somebody 
who's had that experience of God's grace, if you've experienced the mercy and the power and the love of God at this table, your response needs to be, the next time I come, who am I bringing with me? Who am I showing to this table? Because guess what? Everybody gets a seat at this table. I want to be very clear about this. Everybody gets a seat at this table. Now, as I was preparing for this weekend and thinking about John and Zechariah and Elizabeth, God reminded me of who the Elizabeth was in my story. This is her. That's my Nana. Now, for those of you that want to know what I look like with hair, there it is. (laughs) It's pretty much downhill after that. But look at, I mean, you can see, look at her face. Like there was, there was nobody that loved me quite like my Nana did. In so many ways, she prepared the way for me. And not just me, my brothers and my sister, like some grandparents, they have favorites. Not my Nana, every one of us, we were all her favorite. Man, she loved us. It didn't matter if it was a football game, a baseball game, a play, a concert, a show, whatever it was, if we were in it, she was gonna be there. So I started playing guitar when I was in elementary school and all I could afford was just this little cheap little pawn shop guitar. And I really wanted a nice guitar. So I went to Burleson Music and I picked one out. It was $500. So immediately I get to work. I start mowing lawns. It's, uh, I, I got $10 for every lawn that I mowed and there were two lawns in my neighborhood that I could mow. It's gonna take me a while, right? What does my Nana do? She goes out to that store and she buys me this guitar. Look, she didn't know. She didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up. She just, she, she saw how much joy it brought me whenever I played guitar. And she didn't think twice. She went out, she did it for me. Fast forward eight years and I'm, I'm in college and I'm majoring in classical guitar performance. Once again, broke college student, don't have any money. All I have is a cheap pawn shop guitar. What does my Nana do? She goes and she buys me a custom-built classical guitar so that I'd have a decent concert instrument in college. Look, I got, I got a pretty cool guitar collection now in my office upstairs, but I'm telling you, if this church catches flame and I can only make it out with two guitars, I'm grabbing these because they represent so much more than an instrument. These, they represent a woman who loved me, a woman who believed in me, a woman who prepared the way for me. I'm reminded of the grace of God. I'm reminded how, yes, some people are gonna drop the ball, but God is gonna find a way to put somebody in my life to fill the gap. That's what these guitars represent for me. So it's only fitting that that years later, God would take the same passion for music a passion that's based primarily on selfish desire. Because, I mean, let's face it, why, why do kids pick up the guitar in the first place? I mean, you've heard the expression about being the rock star of the boardroom or being the rock star in the business world or the rock star in the political world. You know what a kid thinks is cooler than all of that? Just being a rock star. That's, it was, that's what it was about for me. Just wanted to be a rock star, wanted to be in the spotlight, wanted to, man, it was all about me. And God says, okay, Chris, yeah, you've you've taken this gift that I've given you and you've used it for yourself for a while. That's pretty cool. 
But let me show you something a lot cooler. Watch what happens when you take the spotlight off of yourself and you start pointing people to me. Watch what happens when you start serving others. Watch what happens when you stop starring in your own movie and you become the supporting cast for somebody else and their story of redemption. Look, people's lives are going to change. Families are going to start experiencing healing in a powerful way when they experience my grace. Do you know how cool it is to know that God used you to change somebody else's life? Do you know how cool it is to know that you got to be a part of somebody else's victory, about somebody else's story of redemption? This is what happens when we embrace that concept that it's not about me. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Like we can say that all day long. Hey, it's not about me. It's not about me. But are we willing to sacrifice for that? I want you to think about what you wrote down at the beginning, your favorite Christmas tradition. Why don't you think about that? What if this year, to prepare the way for somebody else, meant that you had to sacrifice your favorite Christmas tradition? I wonder, could you do it? What if your favorite Christmas tradition is, come, is to come to a Christmas Eve service and sit in a specific place? What if this year you don't sit there? You open up that seat and you make sure that there's somebody else sitting there, somebody else that hasn't had that encounter that you've had. And when you do that, they get to experience the grace of God in a powerful way. Would you do it? Or what if on Christmas Eve, instead of coming here at all, you say, you know what? I want to go up to True Worth. I want to go up to Fort Worth, and I want to be with the community there so that the people there, they get to experience a, a big fellowship of, of people, of, of believers that, that are really celebrating the season. Would you do it? If, you, if you've been around here long enough, you know that during the Christmas season, we have this thing called Birthday Gift of Jesus. And every penny that we raise, it goes outside of these walls. Every penny of it, it goes to spread the love of God throughout the world. What if this year, instead of spending every penny that you got on gifts to put underneath your tree, you say, you know what? This year, I'm gonna budget. I'm gonna give to birthday gift to Jesus so that I can help. I wanna participate. I wanna be a part of what God is doing on the other side of the world. I wanna be a part of somebody else's victory. Somebody I'm never even gonna meet. It doesn't matter. I wanna be a part of that. Could you do it? I want us all to think about that for a minute. And during Advent, we're going to be doing this where we, we take some time at the end of the service so that we can just be still and reflect. So the music's going to play, and, and as that happens, I want to invite you to do two things. And the first is this. I want you to, to reflect on your story, your faith journey. Who, who is the Elizabeth in your story? Who prepared the way for you? Who stood in the gap for you? And as you pray, not just today, but throughout this entire season, I invite you to say a prayer of thanksgiving for that person that God sent that person in your life. And the second thing is this. I want you to ask yourself the question, who am I preparing the way for? Who am I bringing to this table? 
who, who is in my life that the only chance they have to experience that, that grace, that mercy, that transformation of God is going to happen through a conversation with me? Who is that person? Now, when you leave, you're going to uh, have a chance to pick up some invite cards to invite people to come with you. But before you do that, I want you to think about who is that person? And I invite you to pray over that person. I invite you to pray, God, to give you the strength, the wisdom, the, the right way to be with these people, to walk alongside them, to help, help them find their seat at this table. And as we do all of that, I invite you to embrace this concept. It's not about me. God, it's about you. Let's pray.
Father God, we, we pause and we reflect. And we remember that it's the season, it's all about you. And the craziness and the chaos and just the frenetic tendencies that we have, that we miss that it's about you. And we miss the joy of, of being with you during the season and miss the joy of sharing you with others in the season. Father, just still our hearts, still our spirits so that as things are crazy, as things are busy, as we're going, not even nothing, that, that we keep this experience, that we keep you with us in every conversation that we have. And that even when we're not trying to, Father, just by the way we act, we are sharing your love with the people around us in this season, a time when they need it the most. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a good weekend.